Open your Bible, please, this morning to Revelation chapter 21. Navigate on your device if that's how you would prefer to read along. I've been telling you for the last few weeks, the, the reading along part is, I think, really important because uh, even though we're here teaching the Word and hopefully the anointing of the Holy Spirit is upon it, otherwise it's useless, uh, the Holy Spirit can speak to you directly from His Word, from God's Word as we're going through this, and that uh, is a great and wonderful thing, but you have to be reading it. We're in chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 this morning. The topic we find there, we look forward excitedly to the new heavens, the new city, and a new earth with no more sea. The title of our message, Surfless City, Here We Come. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. God bless you back there. I heard that, huh? Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our morning. What a joy, Lord, to have worship this morning, to join together our hearts in praise, our voices rising up to you, our prayers like incense before your throne. Anoint your word, Lord, by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit. Teach us uh, some things, Lord, this morning so that we know a little bit more about the future you have planned for us and for the world around us. But more so, Lord, that we can see Jesus, uh, learn a little bit about him and, and our uh, intimate relationship with him, knowing that he loves us with an everlasting love and has drawn us to himself. Meet our needs here, Lord. We want to cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. All of us have come with needs, some greater, it seems, than others. Uh, you're the only one, Lord, who can hear us all and respond accordingly. We ask that you would do so. In Jesus' name we pray. Those who agreed said, amen. Have you ever seen it, Aragorn? The white tower of Ethelion, gleaming like a spike of pearl and silver. Its banners caught high in the morning breeze. Have you ever been called home by the clear ringing of silver trumpets? The city of Gondor was in Boromir's heart as he was dying from many orc arrows. He wished for its glory to be renewed with the return of the rightful king. We look forward to the city whose builder and maker is God and to the forever rule of the rightful king of kings. The holy city, New Jerusalem, will come down out of heaven from God. It will be a permanent, prominent feature in eternity. Before an angel reveals to John what and who is in New Jerusalem, he tells the wide-eyed apostle what and who is not there. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you will never sorrow in the golden city. And number two, you will never sin in the golden city. Let's take a look at our sorrow and uh, how God will alleviate it in verses one through seven. If you could live anywhere on earth, where would it be? You can't say Riverdale, that's too obvious. So any place other than Riverdale. I'm sure it's a beautiful place, but the place you've chosen isn't gonna be free from tears, death, sorrow, crying, and pain. On the other hand, New Jerusalem will be absent from all those and every other experience that is a result of sin wreaking havoc on God's creation. Where the Savior is, there can be no sorrow. Verse 1, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Heaven with a capital H is God's domain. The heavens above us, the earth's atmosphere and what we would call space, that is going to pass away. 
The Apostle Peter was inspired to write a description of the first heaven and first earth passing away. He did it in his second letter in chapter 3, and he said this, But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. All these things will be dissolved. Newsweek posted an article titled, Who Will Control the 21st Century? Whoever Controls Space. Go Space Force, right? I'm going to try and be a chaplain for Space Force. I don't know if they'll take me or not. Who controls space? Well, one of Satan's titles is Prince of the Power of the Air, Ephesians 2, verse 2. The atmospheric heavens and space are where he currently operates. J.R.R. Tolkien might have described the devil's presence in the heavens using the word fell. It's a favorite word of his, an old use of the word that means fierce or ferocious or deadly or savage. It's interesting, our prayers rise as incense through the devil's war room into heaven. I bet he is incensed. Thank you, thank you. Although it's not the response I was hoping for. Now for the really big question of the day. Why is there no more sea? We are genuinely troubled by the disclosure that there are not going to be any oceans especially those who believe surfing is next to godliness. Maybe you can be like the silver surfer tooling around the universe on your longboard. Maybe that'll suit your fancy. Well, nowhere are we told why there is no more sea. Anything we say would be a guess. We can't substantiate. We can suggest why its absence troubles us. Something in us causes us to refer to beachfront property or tropical islands as what? paradise. Not even close. Jesus told the believing thief crucified with him, today you will be with me in paradise. Geographically speaking, the thief would be in Hades in the comfort section called Abraham's bosom. It's where the souls of the righteous went waiting for the coming of the Lord to lead them to heaven. Jesus would descend there after his death and lead all the righteous to heaven. I think it's okay biblically to say that paradise is being with Jesus. Paradise has never been a place. It is a person. Martin Luther said, I would not give one moment of heaven for all the joy and riches of the world, even if it lasted for thousands and thousands of years. And so uh, this idea that there's going to be no more sea, uh, it gets us thinking about what really is, who really is paradise. It can never be a place. It can only be a person, and that person is Jesus. Verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. New Jerusalem is quite literally the crowning jewel of the new creation. In subsequent verses, we'll see that it is made chiefly of gemstones and other precious material. Gold paves its streets, hence it's called the golden city. It's going to come down out of heaven from God. It could not be built on site because of the devil's temporary hold on the heavens. It's been under construction in heaven, and it's going to be moved into position when the prince has become the pauper, and it's the proper time. 
The new Jerusalem is being prepared in heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. The contemporary English version of the Bible says, it was like a bride dressed in her wedding gown. The New Testament uses marriage as an illustration of our relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the bridegroom, we are his bride. A bride desires to look her best. Hair, makeup, jewelry, maybe a veil, a bouquet adorn her. Her gown is the primary adornment. Just as her gown and other preparations adorn a bride and are one with her, so is the bride of Jesus adorned by the new Jerusalem. Looking at the bejeweled city, you can see the bride having made herself ready. Before we get lost in the beauty of New Jerusalem in subsequent verses, the Lord establishes that it is merely a showcase for the bride. The Lord is excited to put us on display. It gives him pleasure to draw attention to his finished work in us. It's not about us. We understand that, right? It's not about us and how beautiful we will be. It's about us and how beautiful we will be because of what Jesus has done. No one's going to look at you and think that you're just some kind of natural beauty. They're going to look at you and think that you have supernatural beauty in what the Lord has done. And what a great variety of beauty we will have. Uh, I, I dare say that we could call the church his trophy bride on display for all to see. Jesus saved us. He committed himself to setting us apart, to performing a good work in us every moment of every day. He is described as washing us by the water of the word of God. We will be presented without spot or blemish to our heavenly father. I can only imagine how beautiful each of us will be in eternity. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Now, the tabernacle was that tent in the wilderness where God was present among the Israelites. It consisted of two small chambers, the holy place and the holy of holies, separated by a thick veil. It measured 45 by 15, 675 square feet. People who get deeper into the dimensions suggest that New Jerusalem may be in the shape of a pyramid rather than a cube. I guess that's possible. The earthly tabernacle, however, was in the shape of a cube, and so I would lean more towards a cube. It doesn't really matter. It's simply interesting to think about. It says here that God will dwell with mankind. After Adam and Eve sinned, everything in the Bible is God providentially forwarding his plan for redeeming the human race to restore the fellowship our parents forfeited for a fig. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, I do not think of the glory of Eden lying in its grassy walks or in the boughs bending with luscious fruit, but its glory lay in this, that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Here was Adam's highest privilege that he had companionship with the Most High. We talk about serving God, fearing God, obeying God, submitting to God, praying to God, giving to God, and many other things. Those should all be done in the context of enjoying our relationship with God. You say, it's hard to enjoy in my suffering. Well, hey, that's when you can enjoy God the most. To paraphrase the Twilight Zone movie, 
Do you want to hear something really scary? Consider enduring suffering without God. Christians get uptight about suffering, their own and the suffering of others. Non-Christians use this as an excuse all the time. What does it help you if there's no God or if you won't consider him in your suffering? Who do you have to go through that? What answers do you have? None. It, it makes it terrible. It adds a level to suffering uh, that, that is unbearable. God is with you in your suffering. C.S. Lewis said, joy is the serious business of heaven. James went on to say the, in the Bible, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so when we fall into trials and meet them in the earth, uh, we are to consider it or count it as joy. The Apostle Paul was told by God that his suffering would not end this side of heaven. He was to endure it. Paul reacted saying, therefore, gladly, I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmity, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I want to always be careful saying things like this when it comes to divine healing. We believe in divine healing. It would be nothing for God to, to heal someone. And we've seen healings, not just all over the world, but here in our church from time to time. But having said that, most people don't get healed in this dispensation. God's doing something different than he did when Jesus was on the earth. And what he's doing, Paul describes as uh, him showing his strength in our weakness. And so there, there, I'm just suggesting there may come a point in, in your life if you're suffering from something permanent or, or, or chronic or terminal, where the Lord will tell you, like he told P, uh, Paul, I'm not going to do anything about this. You're going to die. And at that point, you can be like Paul and say, well, then I'm going to boast about it. I'm going to glory in my infirmity. Why keep praying about being healed if the Lord has told me not to? Why can't I tell people how wonderful it is that I know Jesus Christ? and that he alone can produce a joy unspeakable and full of glory in my life. Now be careful with that. It's not meant to, to undermine anybody's desire to be healed or a prayer for healing, but it's the truth. Most of the people we pray for are not going to be healed. If you're thinking, well, that's because you said that, you're, you're creating some awful reality, Pastor Gene. It's just the truth, right? I mean, ask yourself, how many of the people that you've prayed for over the years have gotten miraculously healed? It's not because you lack faith. It's because God is doing a, a different thing, a new thing in this dispensation. And where are the people who are rejoicing in their infirmities and glorying in them? We need more people like that. Fellowship with God makes all the difference. Verse four, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes there should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Planet Earth is overrun by death, sorrow, and pain. It produces crying and tears. Jesus is going to wipe away every tear. Have you ever had someone wipe away your tears when you were crying? If you're a parent, you've done this for your little children. It's a tender gesture that only someone very dear to you should attempt. Jesus' death on the cross in your stead 
makes him your ultimate tear wiper. And though he may not do so physically, spiritually, he is always reaching down to wipe away your tears. Every tear means each tear, not just crying in general. Just as the hairs of your head are numbered, so your teardrops are counted. Psalm 56 verse eight says God has them saved in a bottle. I envision a, um, when I think about this, I think of a winery or a wine cellar where you go in and they've all the barrels with all the different vintages and stuff like that. There must be a place somewhere in heaven hanging out, maybe it's a whole planet for all you know, that has barrel after barrel after barrel of tears. And you finally, hopefully it's alphabetical so you don't have to just keep looking, but uh, you, know, you can get to Gene's barrel of tears. Some barrels are gonna be enormous because of the things people had to endure. Others, not so much but there will be a barrel for everyone. Uh, every human being that ever lived, uh, you know, will have a barrel and God takes it as a precious vintage to him. Tears, death, crying, sorrow, and pain epitomize the human experience. We live our lives, one day we're not feeling so well. We get the news, your condition is chronic, maybe terminal. Then many tears lead up to the death. So much crying and sorrow follow death. How great the pain of searing loss. You have a friend in Jesus. He sent the Holy Spirit to be in you and with you, and he called him the comforter. Not just a comforter, not just able to comfort, but the comforter. The, you know, maybe, I can't even imagine, you know, maybe you, you want to see the specialist, right? Uh, you want to see the top guy or gal. You don't want to see the minion and stuff. And so the Lord said, I'm not going to send you a guardian angel or some other things. I'm going to give you, indwelling you, the comforter. You can't get any more comfort than you can get from the comforter. He wipes away your tears through the Holy Spirit. Your life is but a vapor. One day the blurring of your vision from tears will clear forever and you'll be in heaven. Looking back at the cross, I can look forward with overcoming faith to my final redemption and the forever city. There is no greater realization, no better life verse than Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whatever your situation, whatever chronic or acute suffering you're in, whatever terminal condition you develop, whatever mental sorrow and other things that happen to you, to live as Christ. You're to live as Christ in those situations, to let him bring forth his power in your weakness. And if you die, it is gain. And you know, there's nothing, obviously we're, uh, there's nothing wrong with desiring to be in heaven. It's different than desiring to die. No, we don't have a desire to die because to live as Christ. We wanna serve the Lord, but it's okay to long for heaven. To, and especially in the world we live in now. Uh, the only hope is the coming of Jesus Christ for his church and then the things that we're reading about in the Revelation. Yes, we should do everything we can to make the world a better place, a Christian place by sharing the gospel, but we should long for heaven. One writer said, God never said the journey would be easy, but he did say that the arrival would be worthwhile. Verse five, then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. Behold is a magnificent command coming from the Lord. 
where he just speaks to you in your heart in that quiet place and says, hey, behold, and he shows you something. We need to become more attuned to hear God say that to us. There are observations and opportunities every day, subtle ones that we can expect. The apostles Peter and John every day walked by a beggar at the gate called Beautiful. Jesus walked by him many times in his ministry. One particular day, the Lord had Peter and John behold him. The text in Acts 3 says they fixed their eyes on him and they reached out to him and they healed him. Every day, every day, every day, several times a day, this beggar was there and they saw him and they saw him and they saw him and they, they probably had compassion on him. They probably gave him money. And then one day the Lord whispered to their heart, fix your eyes on him, behold him. And because they were listening for the Lord to speak to them and, and all, rather than just hurrying to the prayer meeting, a great miracle took place. All things will be made new. The word new is fresh or brand new. Everything about the new creation will remain fresh and brand new to us. Consumers love new car smell. It doesn't last. In fact, people, they discourage you. They say, oh, you've lost that new car smell. And you want to say, and you've lost a ride. <laughs> I should tell you that there is some evidence that new car smell is toxic. It's produced by, and I quote, off-gassing, that's all you need to know right there, off-gassing of volatile organic compounds. Sorry to ruin that for you, but hey, I care. New Jerusalem smell will last. And he said to me, right, for these words are faithful and true. John may have been so overwhelmed that he stopped taking notes. He stopped writing. John's ministry on Patmos was to record the revelation of Jesus Christ. There was work to do. Have I stopped taking notes? Have you? I don't mean writing insights in the margin of your Bible or keeping a notebook. I mean stop using your gift or gifts. Even if it's, you know, John was enthralled, he was excited, but he put down his pen or whatever he was using. And God said to him, hey, there's work to do. Christian, you will grow weary in well-doing. You'll become apathetic at times, waiting for the coming of the Lord. Uh, many of you today, I'm not reading your mind, this isn't a word of knowledge, but I'm sure that some people still say, Gene, I want to believe that the rapture could happen any minute, but it just, it's been so long and, and so many terrible things are happening. It happens. We fall asleep on the job. That's why we're exhorted to awake and arise and stir up the gifts that are in us. Let the Lord speak to you today about what you uh, ought to be doing. Maybe it's something you used to do. Maybe it's something you've been putting off. It doesn't have to be some giant church-wide ministry or bringing all the churches in the city together. Maybe it's just in your devotional life. I don't know what it is, but the Lord does. We learn here, God is faithful. We fail, we fall. Other people in our lives will let us down, and we will let them down. That's the part of the equation we don't like, right? Oh, that person let me down. What about you? I remember one time, I should, probably shouldn't have said this, but I was counseling with a young man, and he was upset with me, which is easy to be, but uh, in, I, in this case, he was upset because I hadn't done enough for him to disciple him, he said. It's very, this is a serious situation. I'm not making fun of him. And so we talked about that for a while. And, uh, and then when we were done, I said, hey, before you leave, can I ask you a question? He goes, sure. I go, what have you done for me? Nothing, he said. And I go, okay, praise the Lord. 
Now, now that we understand each other, we always, it's always the other person that lets you down, right? But we let people down too. Not so Jesus. He is faithful. And he's also true. There's a use of the word true that we have lost. It means to make level or square or balanced or concentric. All of you have ridden a bicycle. You ever look down at the front wheel and it's a little bit wobbly? It's not going straight? Well, you need to adjust the spokes. That's what those little screw things are on the spokes. Huh, really? Yeah, and you adjust those and it, it trues the wheel. And so this is saying that, that over the course of your life, the Lord is going to true you. You're going to be the real you, the you that, he, that you want to be and don't even know it because the Lord knows you so much better. He is a truer of people. Benny Hester saying, though some know me well, still nobody knows me like you, Lord. Verse six, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Jesus identifies himself as Alpha and Omega four times in the Revelation. They are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's a way of saying that we ought to listen, get counsel, and seek guidance from him. You, you might say that everything there is to be said, he is the one to say it to you. We do know that everything needed to live a godly life is in his word, ready to be applied by God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He first made that offer in the Gospel of John. It is the offer of the Holy Spirit to those who receive him as Lord and Savior. Thirst is a longing we all identify with. It's a universal longing. In Ecclesiastes, the Bible says that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. Just like your physical body has a thirst for water, your spiritual heart has a thirst for God, for eternity, that only can be met by him. And so much of what happens in a, in a human being's life is a search for meaning, a search for purpose, a search for direction. Sadly, so many get sidetracked uh, into false religions and false philosophies and other things. They dedicate their lives to meaningless endeavors. The only thing is a person that is going to satisfy you, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the missing piece of the puzzle. Verse 17, excuse me, verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. We use the word overcome to describe great effort with constant failure. We think of something like Overcomers Anonymous, populated by folks desperate not to relapse, but who do, working on their steps. Believers are overcomers. 1 John 5, 4 says overcoming is having faith in Jesus Christ. You are an overcomer by virtue of receiving Jesus and having the indwelling Holy Spirit. Some of you who were saved later in life as an adult and had many problems, let's say you, had a, you were an alcoholic, what the world would call an alcoholic or a drunkard, drug problems, whatever, and you came to know Jesus Christ and immediately... Those things were gone. You had no desire to drink. You had no desire to smoke pot. You flushed everything down the toilet. You threw it away. You figured, why well, give it to somebody else if it's poison? You know, those kinds of things. Uh, you didn't need to go to a Christian meeting. You didn't go to church and say, hey, I just got saved, and now I have all this baggage. I, I wish you could help me with it. We didn't sit you in a circle and give you a coin and say, here's your first week, or this is your first meeting. 
Can those things help? Yes. So keep it in context. I'm trying to tell you that if you're a Christian, you can overcome these things because they're done by the power of who? God, the Holy Spirit, who does what? Indwells you. And so many times you give up overcoming because you give in to your flesh. It's not that you can't do something, it's that we won't because we want to satisfy the flesh. You're a son who's gonna inherit all things. I like the sound of that. You, you, you know, it, 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 we, you don't wish for anybody to die so that you can inherit. And so many, th you know, how many people are fighting over wills and last testaments and, you know, who gets what? Well, God says, hey, you're going to inherit everything. And guess what? I'm going to be with you in that inheritance. I don't die. You're going to inherit everything and be with dad for eternity. And so our first bullet point is that the new Jerusalem in that city, we will never again sorrow. You can replace sorrow with anything hurtful, hopeless, hateful, helpless, debilitating, depressing, discouraging. You get the idea. Nothing like that will be in that city. You'll never sin in the golden city. Uh, the list of words and phrases that are considered inappropriate or offensive is growing daily. Uh, and a lot of them cause us to laugh a little bit. Uh, some I understand. But here's, and this is an actual list of things that uh, employers now uh, consider offensive. Hysterical, it's because it comes from hysterectomy, ladies. Uh, ghetto, mumbo jumbo, I forget what that has to do with anything. Fuzzy wuzzy, peanut gallery, gyp, G-Y-P, when you gyp somebody, because that uh, calls attention to Romani gypsies who, and you don't want to, you know, discredit the gypsies. Uh, paddy wagon is offensive to the Irish. Long time no see, man hours, ethnic restaurant, and hun. You're, you ever call your spouse hun? Hey hun, can't do that anymore because it reminds us of Attila the hun and other huns, no? other huns who cast aspersions on Asiatic peoples. And now listen to eight terms in verse eight. The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars. Wow. And not only that, but those people are headed to the lake of fire with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, I'm not suggesting we be insensitive. I grew up in an insensitive home. I know insensitive. There are words that are highly charged with racism, sexism, ageism, and the like. I've got a dozen for every one of those categories uh, in two languages. And so I'm not being, and, and the point I'm trying to make is a lot of times, I, I don't know if I can, I don't know how to describe this really without showing a clip, but we're not going to, but sometimes from the pulpit where people ought to be teaching the word of God, we encounter, you throw out things that are insensitive or inappropriate because you know, the, you know the audience will, well, you have a low view of the audience, I would say, because you think, hey, they're gonna, you mentioned this group of people and they're gonna like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Those people are ruining the earth and stuff like that. And so we're not talking about doing stuff like that. This list of people is a list of people who do these things who need to get saved or Christians who shouldn't be doing those things. And so, so we're not going to get into that. We're not gonna start labeling people and, and doing all of that. Uh, and just because the Bible uses a term and is straightforward, it doesn't mean we should use it maliciously. 
We just use it factually. There's nothing insensitive or malicious about the use of these words in verse eight. They might get us kicked off media just for reading them, but they are there for at least two good reasons. First, the terms are representative of some of the ways sin manifests itself. Not all, but just some. It's a reminder. And it's reminding us that eternity is going to be free from all of these sins and from sinners. And that will be glorious. As much as we want family members and friends and the general population to still get saved, in heaven we're going to be glad that, only, uh, that it's a sinless place without sinners. And second... A person who recognizes him or herself in these words and terms is being evangelized. I can see somebody, even somebody here, reading this and thinking, oh, wait a minute. I have lied. I've told a lie. I can't go to heaven because I'm a liar. And they go, oh, isn't that extreme? No. Even one sin is enough to keep you out of heaven. You're in bad trouble if you're not a Christian. And something... And you think murderers, sexually immoral, abominable people, and liars? Our world is full of liars. We love liars. We vote for liars. <laughs> right? It's evangelical. A third reason John was instructed to write these words has to do with their meaning in the context of the revelation. Don't ever forget, we're reading about what just happened in his description of the great tribulation. Cowardly in the context of the great tribulation would refer to people who refused to follow Jesus because they were afraid of persecution and martyrdom. Cowardice is the opposite of boldness. So many of the Christians were bold in their witness and in the great tribulation they became martyrs. And so there really is such a thing as cowardice. Unbelieving reminds us of the great lengths God goes to in the great tribulation to save people. Anybody who is lost and perishes, that was a personal decision. Abominable reminds us of the mid-tribulation event called the abomination of desolation. It's abominable because those who follow the beast worship the beast. Murderers, they killed the two witnesses and faithful believers who refused the mark. And we saw rampant sexual immorality, sorcery, and idolatry, especially in the discussion about Babylon in chapters 17 and 18. With that, it is finished. The great romance of redemption ends its lengthy run on the stage of the universe, and a new musical begins called Forever. No sin, no sinners. Admittedly, it's hard to wrap our heads around that. I mean, if Satan sinned and Adam and Eve sinned, why won't we? Well, sometimes you have to ask yourself a better question than the question you're asking. And so people do ask, well, how come we won't sin? The better question to ask is, can Jesus sin? No, right? I mean, you don't have to think about that. Jesus can't sin. He didn't sin. He can't sin. John says, we're going to be, what, like Jesus. And so as far as the mechanics of it, I don't, uh, I don't understand that. But if I'm like Jesus and I want to be and I'm going to be, I'm going to be like him. He can't sin. I won't sin. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed... We shall be like him.